0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: I am Sarah Seidner, and this is CNN Tonight. The message by the special master that Donald Trump asked for in his battle over his possession of classified documents is basically this. Put up or shut up. And you have a deadline to do so. And that deadline is next Friday. Michael Cohen, Donald Trump's longtime personal lawyer turned nemesis, is here. I'll talk to him in just a few minutes about the former president's many legal battles, including one of the vital new developments tonight, putting Donald Trump under quickly increasing pressure. That special master, Judge Raymond Deary, now says Team Trump has to back up any claims of the FBI planting evidence at Mar-a-Lago during last month's search. And they have to do it in a sworn declaration. They also have to say whether they are claiming that any of the items on the inventory list were not taken from the premises. Remember, it's one thing to make those claims outside of court. It is a whole nother thing to do so in court, where a lie could be a crime itself. And Trump and his allies have been claiming it without proof for weeks, including... This from the former president just last night.
2: Did they drop anything into those piles, or did they do it later? There's no chain of custody here with them. Wouldn't that be on videotape, potentially? Uh, No, I don't think so. I mean, they're in a room.
1: The judge says, prove it. And gave Trump's team one week from tomorrow to reveal the evidence. Our sources suggest Trump was considering releasing so-called surveillance video over a month ago, but that has not happened. Earlier this week, the special master pushed Trump's lawyers to take a position on whether the former president had, in fact, declassified the documents. They haven't done so yet, but here's what Donald Trump said about all that last night.
3: Is there a process? What was your process to declassify? There doesn't classify? have
2: to be a process, as doesn't. I understand it. You know, there's different people say different right. things. But as I understand, there doesn't have to be. If you're the president of the United States, you can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified, even by thinking about it. Because you're sending it to Mar-a-Lago or to wherever you're sending it. And there doesn't have to be a process. There can be a process, but there doesn't have to be. You're the president. You make that decision. So when you send it... It's declassified. We, I declassified everything.
1: Okay. The former president arguing that merely thinking about the act of declassification can make it so. A notion that brought a flood of mocking on social media today with comparisons to I Dream of Genie" and the like. But... Listen more carefully, and you hear Donald Trump raise the idea that he knew what he was doing when he sent those documents to his home in Mar-a-Lago, regardless of their sensitivity. That is no joke to the national security community. Neither is the $250 million lawsuit Donald Trump and three of his adult children now face from the New York State Attorney General over what she calls astounding fraud and deception by Donald Trump and his namesake company, an investigation in which she has sent referrals for possible criminal prosecution to the U.S. attorney in Manhattan and the Internal Revenue Service. Add these legal challenges to all the other current battles faced by the former president and you have a potential 2024 candidate with personal crisis unlike any other person who has ever contemplated a political comeback in America. Tonight, we look for insight from a man who was once as close to Donald Trump as anyone could be outside of his family. I'm joined now by Michael Cohen. He's Donald Trump's former lawyer. These days, he hosts a podcast called Mea Culpa, and he's got a brand new book coming out. It's called Revenge, how Donald Trump weaponized the U.S. Department of Justice against his critics. Michael Donald Trump's financial misdeeds are not new to anyone especially people who live here in New York. Tim O'Brien for example wrote a book uh, about Donald Trump who basically was saying that he was worth 5 to 6 billion when O'Brien said no nah, it was about 250 million.
4: And then he sued him.
1: And then he sued him. <laughs> and then you had the the AG sort of looking at OK, well, what happened here in the SEC looking at in 2022 uh, saying, look, you made some misleading comments about or, or some misleading statements about your hotels and what they were worth. And it basically it was like, OK, here's a cease and desist. And that went away. But it's not an unknown entity. So why did it take your testimony, according to the AG herself, to bring this case forward when this has been a long-standing issue with the Trump organization and Donald Trump himself?
4: OK, so what do you know about Donald Trump? is what Donald Trump tells you that he wants you to know. I was one of the very few insiders. In fact, I was the only insider at the Trump Organization with any real knowledge that was willing to come in to testify, to provide not just information, but documentary evidence in order to demonstrate that he was doing exactly what our amazing attorney general has now put forth in a 200-page indictment. And that is that he inflates his assets for the purpose of net worth and he deflates it in terms of uh, reducing the tax burden on those assets. Nothing else to say. It is what it is. This is what Donald Trump is all about. As I stated in the opening of my oversight committee testimony, he's a fraud. He's a con man. He's a
1: cheat. That's who he is. Let me ask you this, because I've had this question in my head for a really long time about you. Why did you stay so long? Knowing that you were his enforcer, you were trying to make sure that he was safe legally. He was coming to you with all this stuff. I mean, first of all, how much of your time was spent trying to keep him out of legal trouble and to keep his reputation, which he appears to care so much about that he's willing Mm -hmm. to bully people intact? How much of your time was spent doing that?
4: Twenty three hours a day. Really? I, really, no joke. I mean, I was the first phone call every morning. I talk about my old book, Disloyal. First phone call every morning, 4.30, 5 a.m. And the last phone call before he went to sleep at 11, 11.30 p.m. Every single night. There What's was not he a calling single you about? vacation. What's he
1: calling you about? What is he asking you to do?
4: It's whatever was on his mind. Somebody was annoying him, that there was an issue. Uh, there was a potential lawsuit. There was a defamation claim he thought was against him. Whatever it was on his mind at that moment, speed dial, There I was, awake and dealing with it. Sometimes I was up all night long trying to resolve the issue for him.
1: So how were you dealing with it? Was it, I'm going to sue you? I'm going, threatening. What were you doing and what did he tell you to do to sort of make this go away, if you will?
4: Well, it depends. It depends on which issue it was. If it was somebody who defamed him, speak with them, make them retract it. If they don't retract it. File a lawsuit, bring on so-and-so law firm and, you know, let's file a lawsuit and let's do what we have to do. Um, Because, as you stated and accurately, there's nothing more important to him than his reputation and the presumption that he's as rich as he claims to be.
1: Let me ask you about some of the, it seems like randomness of, of numbers. And, and here's a few. For in Mar-a-Lago, for example, um, if it's worth $75 million, it's one thing to, to round that up. But how does it end up being worth $739 million? Right.
4: So in his mind, and he talked to Tim O'Brien, if you speak with him about it, he wrote it extensively in his book. He values things how he feels. He calls it mental valuation. Uh, I think that your jacket right is worth 10 million dollars. He goes that's what I think it's worth. It's a delusional delusional position to take that he gets to determine what the value is of anything. Now, what he also did is he claimed that it's worth the 739 million because you could parcel it out and it is a large piece of property in an exceptionally expensive area of Palm Beach. However, he gave away that right. So he ignored The limitations on the property in order to increase the value. Yeah, I bet if you were able to parcel it out into quarter acre plots, it could be worth a lot of money. Maybe not 700 million, but it certainly could be worth a whole lot more than 75. But you can't. He gave that asset away. Let me give you another example right over here. Something that's not even in this in this um, indictment. 725 Fifth Avenue. He truly treats that public space as if it's his own It is not his. It belongs to you, the taxpayer of New York. It's why it says public space on it. He decides, I don't want shares in there because homeless will come in. And I don't want this going on because of this. I mean, this is what he does. He believes it's his. He gave that away in order to get higher FAR, the air rights, in order to build the property, the residential, next door. He also claims that those buildings are all his, even though they're fee simple, absolute. You own them yourself, like if it was a house, Mm. Right. It belongs to all the people who own the property. Yeah, he owns his apartment, but he doesn't own my apartment. He doesn't own your apartment. You pay for that. He claims it's his building.
1: Okay, and I just want to make clear, this is a civil lawsuit from the AG. An indictment has not come forward when it comes to uh, the the monies and the the dealing. But they are sending that to the SDNY and to the IRS. Let me ask you, um, going forward, you said something that was really interesting. You said when he mentally makes a decision and he says, "Okay, it's worth this much. Do you think he's doing the same thing when it comes to the classified documents that he says, oh, I mentally declassified them? Absolutely. I just there, Absolutely. There's
4: it. something very different about Donald Trump today than the Donald Trump I remember at the Trump Organization. How so? Uh, I think cognitively there's something seriously going on. He's so worried about what's going on, not just in this case, but in all of the cases, that I really do believe that cognitively there's something going on there because nobody, even Donald, is not stupid enough to believe that you can mentally declassify documents. He knew what documents were there. I mean, there's nuclear documents, and we don't even know which ones that they are. We don't know what country they relate to. Right. You know, There's so many people that are out that are, that these conjectures. What could it be? What, is, it, is it France? Is it this? What if, hypothetically, it's Israel? And that's how Jared was able to get $2 billion from the Saudi Investment Authority. I mean, we could think of all of these various things. We're not going to know right? until, God forbid, there's an is- there's an incident that takes place. And we don't want that to happen. And he doesn't care. And I believe he took those documents and all of them in order to use against the United States in the event that he is indicted or potentially incarcerated. Wait, it's are, a get out of jail s-
1: free card. Are you saying, and of course the Trump organization to say that is absolutely imp- preposterous because but,
4: the trump organization tells the truth all the time as <laughs> does donald
1: but are you saying that you think that if he's indicted that he would use it against the united states in other words sell secrets
4: are you joking of course 100 percent. there's nothing that he won't do to protect himself because he doesn't care about anyone else other than himself in fact he'll let his kids go down before him he'll let them fall on the sword the same way he let
1: me fall on the sword that's who he is so why do people follow him? Why do people stick with him? Why does his, all of his team... Why did I? Why did you? I can only say...
4: There must there's something missing in my life. Look, I had just come off of a massive health issue and I was bedridden for quite some time. I blew a whole series of pulmonary embolists that almost ended my life. I'm a deal junkie. There was the celebrity part to it. He had the number one show, The Apprentice. There was deals going on. I was bored in my life and I fell into the cult of Donald Trump. And the way that the Trump organization is set up, it's set up almost like a fraternity. And, you know, you become friends with everybody in the place. You're part of the the club. Yes. And what's the club? Protect the Donald club at all costs. And trust me, I know because I paid the ultimate
1: sacrifice. You went to prison for it. I did. All right. Michael Cohen, thank you so much for your honesty and for your pointedness. (laughs) Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. We'll take this conversation to our political and legal experts and we'll look at the Republican senators who are not happy with what they're hearing now from Donald Trump. That is coming up next. Donald Trump is having a rough week, to say the least. But then again, we've seen the same sort of headline written before, like in February when he lost three key legal hearings, or in June of 2020 when the reporting was about political missteps and a fracturing campaign, or in 2019 during his first impeachment, or 2018 when the Mueller investigation was cranking up, or the year before that, when he failed in his bid to get Obamacare repealed. In other words, it's only Thursday, and as bad as this week has been for Donald Trump and the Trump Organization, to be pretty frank, he's had a lot of bad weeks, but he tends to bounce back, at least politically. Let's see how this one stacks up with former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig and a couple of keen political minds in Errol Lewis and Scott Jennings. Thank you so much For joining us. All right, I'm going to start here, and this is for anyone to jump in. How bad is this week for Donald Trump in comparison to the litany of things I just threw out there?
5: This is pretty serious, uh, in part because it's not a a political crisis that he now faces. The attorney general's uh, investigation and uh, the complaint that she filed really goes to the heart of his commercial empire. There are real financial consequences that politics aside, he cannot afford to ignore. Uh, It's also very detailed and it deals with hundreds and hundreds of instances so that he's going to have to get more than just a couple of, you know, willing lawyers to help him out. He's going to have to put the whole organization to work uh, dealing with this. It affects his children. It affects his stature. Uh, It's something that he is going to have to really spend a lot of time on. This is this is going to probably be even more complicated than fending off the impeachment.
1: Because there are so many documents and so many things that they can point to that are concrete. I, I want to look at this poll, the New York Times-Siena College poll. Um, the view of Donald Trump, favorable now versus July, that's dropped off a bit. And so there it is. 44% now, July was 39%. Unfavorable 53 July was 57 His numbers have actually gone up for favorable a bit. So is this really that bad of a week for him? Politically speaking. Yeah, I mean, the the wall speaking is a different thing.
6: The walls have been closing in, so to speak, for a very long time. I mean, I mean, how many times have we heard that? I think for most people, this gets extremely complicated. I was listening to Michael here. and it's. I mean, look, I'm not a lawyer. I'm just, I'm just an average Republican, you know, political guy. It's very complicated. January 6th is going on. The Georgia investigation is going on. Uh, I mean, there's a number of things going on, but he's never been indicted, you know, and until he is, I don't know that it's going to actually feel real, you know, to the average voter out there. I think they're waiting, you know, we've been waiting for the next shoe to drop for years. And so I I think until that happens, you're unlikely to see much movement on him. Now, there was a survey out today, uh, the MU Law National Survey today. And for the first time in a survey I've seen of national Republican political figures, Ron DeSantis had a higher net favorable rating than Donald Trump. They were both quite popular, but DeSantis had a four-point lead in terms of net favorability. So there is some evidence, in my opinion, that Republicans may be looking for alternatives here. It's still early in the process. But if you're looking for little signs of weakness, that was one I I picked up on
1: today. That there is someone else that people can pivot to if they decide.
6: Well, somebody who gives you everything you want, the same sort of fighting spirit and the same, you know, kind of attitude without all the baggage Baggage.
1: and chaos. All right. So at this point in time, legally speaking, Ellie. We're in a put up or shut up time. Correct. I mean, these allegations that the FBI, you know, planted evidence, and and you know, we've seen no evidence of that. The judge is now saying, right. We need to see the evidence.
7: Yeah, there's only so, so long you can carry off a complete fiction in the courts. Because what we see happening right now with the special master is what tends to happen in courts. You can make allegations, but eventually you have to prove it. This whole special master process, by the way, is going really poorly for both sides. Donald Trump is being called out on his declassification claims, uh, you know, his claims... All- All over the map, he's now being put to the test. There's claims that evidence was planted. He's not going to be able to support those. But this is not going swimmingly for DOJ either. First of all, this is taking forever. The special master hasn't even started. We're almost seven weeks out from Mar-a-Lago. This will be dragging on through November. There's a reason they didn't want the special master. Remember, they won their appeal last night on that narrow set of documents, but they fought like mad against the special master. And this is devolving into a mini-trial before trial. Nobody is winning here. This special master, I think today, the order that he issued, really sort of focuses. People says, here's the deadlines. You have to do this by this date. But but boy, I don't think either side's happy with this.
1: But if you have this deadline and the evidence is not there and the evidence has been promised for the past few weeks of this video or that's showing – if it's not there, then that's not good for the Trump team or Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean... The, the DOJ wins.
7: The judge will have to make a finding. Here's what I think is going to happen. I think you're going to see his legal team continue to tap dance. On the planting claim, they're going to say, we're continuing to investigate, and this isn't the time for it. That's later. But eventually, a judge just says, nope, that's it. I gave you your chance. You didn't submit. I find against you.
1: I want to quickly talk about some words that Donald Trump used uh, when he was on a different network speaking about these declass... declassifying these documents. And he basically said... I thought they were declassified. Therefore, they are. I think, therefore, they are. Here is how Senate Republicans sort of responded to hearing that because it did two things. One, there was an admission that he actually this was something he did. It wasn't an accident. It didn't happen and happen to be in some of the boxes. He didn't know about it. It was clear that he did it. And then he thought about it. Right. And said, like, OK, these are declassified in his mind. Here's what some uh, Senate Republicans said today about that.
3: I think there's a process for declassifying documents, um, and, uh, and I think it ought to be adhered
6: to and followed. And I think that should apply to anybody. I believe there's a formal process that needs to go through it, that, that needs to be gone through and, and documented.
0: Up here, we take it very seriously.
1: Um, people can get hurt. People can get killed. People can get hurt. People can get killed. There's a process. Donald Trump says there is no process. How bad is this now that you're hearing from Thune Tillis rounds like how bad is this for politically for Trump? Well, or when you
6: it? look at when you look at the episodes of him over the years, uh, most of the time he enjoyed a cadre of Republicans with titles coming out and defending him. Yeah. You know, first impeachment was a great example. You know, they rallied around him. In this particular case, very serious people are not willing to die on this ridiculous hill. I mean, what he said is is patently ridiculous. Everybody seems to agree on that. And uh, I found it noteworthy that they're not they're just not willing to continue to fall on on sword after sword. I mean, you fall on so many swords and, you know, eventually you're too full of holes to stand, I guess. And so that and that and that to me is the difference between when he was the president and right now.
5: It's a ridiculous claim that he can't take into court. His lawyers are strenuously avoiding going into court and saying any of anything resembling what we just heard about, you know, mentally declassifying uh, stuff. Uh, I think what we're going to see, though, is that as as this moves forward, lots of people are going to say, especially members of Congress, who have very serious responsibilities around declassification, they're not going to necessarily stand with them, number one. And number two, the, the reasons that they search Mar-a-Lago and the, the statutes that underlie a possible violation here have nothing to do with classification. The problem here is that when the archives ask for materials back, even if you legally and properly had it, when they ask for it back, you got to give it back. And There's if an do issue. that's where the problem lies. One other issue is that the
6: explanations for this have been shifting day by day and week by week. So if you're John Foon, who's a serious person, or Mike Rounds, you're being asked to defend some excuse today. Well, who's to say the excuse won't be different tomorrow and you're left sort of hung out to dry with Looking your like ridiculous full, statement? Right. So so I mean, it strikes me they've probably seen enough and they know enough now that tomorrow the rug could get pulled out from under them if they go out and defend a ridiculous claim.
1: All right. Thank you so much, everyone. You guys are gonna stick with me. We need to turn to another serious legal matter. An ugly case gets even uglier. Coming up, the explosive moments at the Alex Jones defamation trial. In Connecticut. Is the judge losing control of this courtroom as Sandy Hook families dissolve into tears and look on? That is coming up next. Emotional and explosive moments in a Connecticut courtroom today as conspiracy theorist Alex Jones, took the stand during the damages phase of his defamation trial. A jury is currently deciding how much Jones has to pay the families of Sandy Hook victims after he spent years spreading lies. About the mass murder of children. I want to show you this moment where the attorney representing some of the families asked Jones to face Robbie Parker, who lost his daughter Emily in the massacre. Robbie Parker's sitting right here. He's real, isn't
3: he? Yes. Is. And for years, you put yeah. a target on his back, didn't you? Objection in
5: the form of that, Judge. I- oh. well, I mean, I. Didn't I mean, you? I've said his name. It's true. I've said other people's names, but who they are.
0: You put a target on his back, just like you did every single parent and loved one sitting here. No, I didn't. No, you didn't.
5: That's argumentative. There's no,
0: there's speculative.
5: Just you're unbelievable. You switch on emotions on and off when you want. You're it's just ambulance chasing. Why don't you show a little respect? Objection, Judge. I think that you get what you give in this courtroom. Objection.
0: You have families in this courtroom here that lost children sisters, wives, moms.
1: This is a struggle session. Are we in China?
5: I've already said I'm sorry hundreds of times, and, I, and I'm done saying I'm sorry.
1: He is done saying I'm Sorry. Several of the victims' families were sitting in that courtroom. You could see they had tears in their eyes, streaming down their face. The judge later admonished both sides over the outburst, warning them they could be held in contempt if they continue to violate court rules. Our guests are back with me to discuss. Ellie, I know you are chomping at the bit. I don't know that I've seen something as cruel as that in a courtroom where you have all these parents sitting there and whose children were, were killed senselessly and having somebody who further injured them.
7: I agree. That whole scene is, is an outrage and a disgrace uh, on a couple levels. First and foremost, Alex Jones. I mean, he's he's a villain. He's the villain in this story. No questions about it. It's unfathomable to do what he did to these families A distant second place, though, that judge has to get control of that courtroom. That is a ridiculous scene. I've been in plenty of courtroom encounters that have been animated, heated. I've never seen anything like that. And the judge owes it not just to the orderly administration of justice to get his courtroom in order, but he owes it to the families who are sitting there. They are entitled to a dignified process and not a ridiculous shouting match, personal accusations back and forth with the lawyer, Alex Jones saying whatever he wants. After the fact, I guess the judge said, everyone calm down. I'll give you, you know, or I'll hold you in contempt. He should have done that 10
1: seconds into
7: that exchange. He's lost control of that courtroom and needs to get it back.
1: Errol, I'm curious from you, is there anything... I mean, we have the First, the First Amendment in this country. He's still doing his podcast. He's still got a bunch of people listening. Is there anything that can be done to stop something like this from happening, to stop Alex Jones from, from, from injuring people like
2: this?
5: Well, that, that's really what the point of this is, you know, because as bad as the emotional trauma is, uh, all of the lies and the conspiracies that he spread, it had real damage. You know, there's at least one woman who had to move five times. Her mother was the principal and was killed there. And because of the garbage that Alex Jones spread, you had conspiracy theorists following these people around, harassing them, threatening them, stalking them. You know, you you have someone who's uh, uh, the the, the child uh, is massacred. The husband later commits suicide. And then she finds conspiracy theorists hanging around the cemetery to see if the body is really there. I mean, just unfathomable things. Alex Jones, however, because this is about money damages... Uh, He can take this as a cost of doing business, you know, because he makes so much money. The only way to truly punish this, because money is the only thing that's being talked about right here. It's the only thing, you know, he's not going to lose his freedom or anything. They have to take a lot of it. They Mm. have to take all of it. They have to make it clear that anyone who wants to embark on this and try and sell, you know, diet pills and supplements and stir up an angry, crazed mob and set it on innocent families over a decade. Anybody who wants to do that, it's going to cost much, much more than they think. The jury has a
1: really important responsibility here. I want to ask you, Scott, you know, the the first trial, I think, was in Texas, which is sort of Jones's backyard. Mm -hmm. This trial is far closer to where the massacre happened at Sandy Hook uh, in Connecticut, Waterbury. Does that make a difference here with the jury, do you think? Gosh,
6: I don't know. Ellie might have a better read on that (laughs) than me. I mean, just as an observer and and as a non-lawyer, I was stunned at the scene today. And I would assume uh, the jury was stunned by all of this and and anybody in the courtroom was just stunned. I I, I think the judge, I think ultimately you're you're talking about institutions here. You know, this guy did something terrible. Mm. He is a creep and he is a scumbag and he's being, this trial is about holding him responsible. So, So you want people to trust the outcome of that, which means the institution itself has to be run in a way that gives as much confidence in the outcome as possible.
1: Because he is constantly talking about conspiracies and deep state, and he's still doing it on his podcast during the trial.
6: Exactly. And so you don't want him to be able to, did you see the video? This was a total circus, and the plaintiffs were allowed to do all this. So I hope the judge, as Ellie said, gets control of it. And I hope this guy gets everything he's got coming to him, because what he did to those families... Is absolutely evil and it's wrong, and um, there have to be consequences for your actions in this. I mean, that's that's what makes you know that's what makes this whole thing work, right? Is you do something this bad, there right. have to be consequences for that. Or as you said, people feel like they can do it again, right. and you don't want that,
1: right? I have a question for you, Ellie, which you'll probably jump down my throat. But is there any legal relevancy to Joan saying, "Oh, he's just been targeted by the deep state, by the left, by the"? whomever boogeyman that he's chosen? Is there any legal... I will not jump relevance? down your throat. I
7: will answer simply, no, <laughs> there is not. <laughs> um, what matters here? He's already Look, he's already guilty. He, he was. It was yeah. a default judgment because right. he just didn't show up. This is the damages phase. And, and to, to the point both Errol and Scott were making, Alex Jones is why punitive damages exist. If you were teaching the purpose of punitive damages in law school, you would point to Alex Jones because there's two kinds of damages. There's compensatory damages, which essentially means you have to pay back the damage you caused. What was the bills basically here? But then punitive damages go to stop someone, to deter someone, to punish somebody. And if anybody has ever deserved that, it's Alex Jones. And you're not just, you are speaking to Alex Jones, who needs to be hit in the wallet, as Errol said. But you're also speaking to any others who Mm. would see this kind of behavior and say, ooh, there's profit to be made there. And that's why I think the jury has such a strong responsibility, as Scott said.
1: All right. I think we got through it. But it is hard to watch. The cruelty is truly stunning. Ellie Honig, Errol Lewis, Scott Jennings... Thank you all for being here. Appreciate it. Up next, the turmoil overseas on two fronts, the uprisings in Russia and Iran. How far will they go? And what do they tell us about the fate of those in power in those two countries? Aaron David Miller joins me with some perspective coming up next. Civilians across Russia and Iran are rising up against their authoritarian regimes in ways we haven't seen in years. In Russia, more than 1,300 people across 38 cities were arrested Wednesday after protesting Putin's order to mobilize 300,000 reservists to the war in Ukraine. An independent watchdog says some of the protesters detained were drafted directly into Russia's military. They also say just over half of the detainees were women, making it the largest women-involved anti-government protest in recent history there. In Iran, women at the forefront there as well. They have been at the forefront of protest in dozens of cities. Many have removed and burned their headscarves. One woman even cut her hair amid a crowd that included men. They were heard shouting, «Death to the dictator!» The protests were sparked by the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini, who was taken in by Iran's so-called morality police because she allegedly broke the country's headscarf rules. Are these protests a moment a moment, or the start of a movement and larger change in Russia and Iran? Joining me now is CNN global affairs analyst and Middle East expert Aaron David Miller. Thank you so much for joining the program.
2: Sarah, it's great to see you.
1: Let's start in Russia. Russia is in a war right now. They have uh, been not doing as well as they thought they would. They have been losing a lot of people. And now you have this very large protest as they try to conscript and bring in more people as reservists. Is this going to be a moment or is this going to be the start of something larger, you think?
2: You know, Sarah, I don't think Pythia, the oracle at Delphi reading the best of goat trails could probably tell you with any sort of authority. Where this is going. Is this a headline or is this a trend line? In the case of Russia, um, I think Mr. Putin has made uh, a difficult situation worse. He's uh, created this partial mobilization and, in doing so, broke a sort of informal social contract with the Russian people. Um, And the contract went something like this you can steal from us, you can fight, but don't interfere in our private lives. And most Russians, 50 percent, according to uh, the most reputable polling organization, uh, and an additional 20 plus percent are either supportive of this special military action or somewhat supportive. That's 70 percent of the country. But the partial mobilization brings the war home. And I think the stats you uh, you cited indicate that Mr. Putin uh, is going to have a very difficult time managing this. And frankly, I doubt uh, in real time whether or not partial mobilization of reservists who are not well-trained is going to do much to alter the uh, trajectory on the battlefield. Momentum has changed in favor of Ukraine.
1: Okay. Now, I was on the ground in Ukraine. Uh, we heard from uh, Ukrainians who had contacted people in Russia because their their sons had either been killed or captured, and they were sometimes breaking the news to the families. The families didn't even know that that is where their family members were uh, in this war. They're not allowed to use the word "war." There, I do want to talk to you about something about Putin's regime. Uh, there is a thought uh, on the minds of some analysts who say that you know this eventually might be his. Downfall as the leader of Russia. And this is coming from, in one case, the great-granddaughter of Khrushchev. I want you to hear what she said about this war in respect to Putin. Even if something happens to Putin, I think FSB and the security services remain and they will run the country. It may be less toxic, but it's not going to become a great democracy overnight. As we think, if Putin goes, then it's going to be wonderful. No, it's right. not going to. That's Nina Khrushcheva, uh, the great-granddaughter of Khrushchev. Is she right?
2: Well, time is the ultimate arbiter of things that are of value, what endures. Uh, And Tolstoy said that time and patience are the greatest warriors. So I think um, in in that respect, it really depends on whether or not uh, Putin's power base is threatened, Slovakia. The intelligence and security apparatus that support him. Putin turned 70 next month, I think on October seven, and all of the men around him in the security and intelligence establishment have an investment mm. in this regime. I'm sure they're asking themselves questions now. Um, but many military defeats uh, in in Russia uh, over the last couple hundred years, here have led to either reform or revolution. Right. I want so to get this to this Iran really this is a critically really important quickly. issue for Putin. I, I to want to get to Iran
1: really quickly. Agreed with you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this particular thing with women coming out in such strong numbers, could this change things if if not for women, for the country as a whole?
2: i'd I'd like to see it, and I think one day the determination and courage and resilience of the Iranian people um, will in fact change uh, a um, a terrible regime. But you can't underestimate the repressive powers of the state. Remember only, two years ago, three years ago in 2019, protests and riots over gas prices and uh, many other things led to a huge crackdown. 360 people were killed. Iranian civilians were killed. So I think um, um, there's probably very little doubt that um, Raisi, the president, and the supreme leader are going to change this hijab law. Um, They could defuse the situation, at least with respect to women, By calling for a voluntary hijab, but I'm not sure they're going to do that. Any sign of weakness with respect to give Mm. uh, means weakness for the regime. So I I suspect harder liners will prevail in this one, as well as in Russia, for the moment.
1: And to your point, just really quickly, uh, our CNN's Christiane Amanpour uh, tried to get an interview with the president. She has interviewed just about every president of Iran in her lifetime. And when she tried to do so, they insisted last minute that she wear a hijab. She refused. Um, and so that it's clear, clearly, uh, and you see the pictures there, there is clearly a move by the, rege- the Iranian regime to try and stick with this idea of women having to cover uh, themselves in the presence of men. And, and it was, the point was made right here uh, during this interview. Thank you so much, Aaron David Miller. I appreciate you coming on. We have some other very important news tonight. And by the way, this time, it's good news Dr. Sanjay Gupta is here to take us through a historic moment in the fight against cancer, more survivors than ever in this country. How we got here, that's coming up next. Welcome news tonight to anyone who has been impacted by cancer, either directly or indirectly. And there's a lot of people. A promising new report finds that more people in the United States are surviving cancer than ever before. CNN Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta joins me now. Uh, Sanjay, this is really encouraging news. Tell us yeah. a little bit about these. Yeah, findings. I get to give some good news for a change. I mean, right? so
3: nice. You know, we we measure these incremental changes in the progress on cancer, but it's interesting when you sort of see it play out over decades, 1991 till now. What you find is there's been about a 32 percent reduction in the cancer death rates. That's that's significant, and if you actually figure out like how, what does that translate to, three and a half million lives saved. I mean, are people who are alive today who otherwise wouldn't have been. And I can tell you, you just showed this. Back in 71, there was around 3 million cancer survivors in the country. Now, close to 18 million, which is about 5% of the population. So if you're out there, 1 in 20 people, roughly, would identify themselves as a cancer survivor, which is that's that's it's pretty, it's pretty incredible. Yeah. Why
1: is it because of a lot of organizations or is, you know people getting screenings earlier? I, I think there's there's
3: several things, but I think there's a couple major things. First of all, the the main cancers that we're talking about, where a lot of this progress has been made, lung cancer, colon cancer, prostate cancer, and breast cancer. I think there's two things. One is that we're better identifying the genetics of these cancers, so we know the mutations that are causing this, can, and can target those mutations. But also, this this avenue of therapies known as immunotherapy, which actually teaches your immune system or allows your immune system to fight the cancer. I always give the example of Jimmy Carter. You know, he had metastatic melanoma to his brain, a clear death sentence a decade ago. He got one of these immunotherapies, and. You know, as far as I know, he's still building houses with Habitat for Humanity. He's in his mid-90s he's now. He's still
1: here. He's yeah. still doing the work. I want to ask you about your podcast. I know it's exciting. Chasing Life is really, really interesting. This is, what, the fifth season? Yeah, Season five? What's most exciting to you?
3: Well, you know, I mean, this is one of the great privileges, right, for us. We, you know, I, I'm a brain guy. I've always loved that. <laughs> this season is all about the human senses, the way that we perceive the world, and what happens when we don't perceive the world well. Um, Things like face blindness, for example, uh, inability to recognize faces, Uh, but also how animals sense the world and how that's different than humans. We talk about pain. If you have pain, could I ever truly understand your pain by understanding how you experience that pain? We dive into these issues in, in a big way. And I got to tell you, you know, I, I learn a lot, even though I study the brain as my, my side <laughs> job or my primary job. Um, when you do the podcast, you get to talk to these fascinating people who teach us how the world is perceived differently.
1: I always learn something from you. Um, and so this podcast is wonderful. And you've got a great special coming up this weekend. Yeah. I cannot wait to see about uh, Havana syndrome. So thank you so much for coming you on. got it. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for hanging with me. I will be back tomorrow night. Don Lemon Tonight starts right now.
0: Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together.